The talk is about joy beyond its objects. One of my first teachers uh, told a story uh, that really affected me for my whole life of practice. Uh, and, he, and he said that when he came back from Asia, uh, after being a monk there for a long time, a friend of his invited him to a hospital uh, where there, had, there was a woman who had been in an iron lung for 20 years. And he thought that uh, since he had done so much practice, uh, that he would have something to be helpful uh, to just, just this person's presence from being in Asia for so long. Uh, so this uh, teacher of mine went to this hospital to visit this woman who'd been in an iron lung for 20 years. And when he got there, you know, he could just imagine what it would be like. You know, just in a week of reach, just maybe. <laughs> Imagine what it would be like uh, to be in an iron lung for 20 years. Uh, it's just unfathomable. Uh, and he just broke down and he said, you know, how, how have you been able to stand this? What, you know, what, <laughs> what is going on? And she said that um, every once in a while in the summer, during the course of a day, a nurse would come into her room and sometimes a nurse would open the window, and sometimes a breeze would come in the uh, room, and sometimes this breeze uh, would touch her cheek and would tell her all she needed to know. Mm. And that, that was so um, powerful a story for me because it feels like that's what the practice is all about, is, is having that intense um, vulnerability where we're just able to receive life so fully and so deeply that we're transformed. And what's transformed is our understanding, that degree of openness where we really let ourselves be touched so deeply by the universe, there will be a deep understanding. And just in one moment of a light breeze touching our cheek will truly be enough. It can tell us all we need to know. The teaching is that whether a moment is pleasurable or painful, that if there's enough mindfulness, if we're protected by mindfulness, then we can be this vulnerable and that we can receive and learn from the rain, the wind, the cool fog, knee pain, loneliness, our difficult person. The nature of taking birth on this human plane of existence means that we're facing over and over, moment by moment, this vulnerability that we really never know what's going to happen. We don't know whether the next moment will be painful or pleasurable. And this is dukkha, this um, unreliability of experience itself. So how to, do we become free in this world? And the idea is that we don't have to get rid of the pain in this world to be free. 
and we don't have to get rid of the pleasure in this world to be free. We're learning to be protected by the presence of mindfulness, where we deeply accept and we don't take personally whatever is arising in the moment. And so we're, we're not troubled by pain or pleasure if we see clearly. Mindfulness is that ability to just be with what's obvious and to not to need to embellish the moment, but just to see it just as it is. We slowly learn in this process of a practice that reacting to change adds more and more aversion and attachment to this world and it's adding more suffering rather than peace or joy. For the last two years I've been teaching a three-week retreat in Upper Burma with a Sayadaw named Sayadaw Ulakana in a monastery that's about 700 years old uh, in these uh, beautiful hills overlooking the Irrawaddy River. And there's a village uh, that supports the monastery there. And sometimes um, there'll be, for example, a wedding, and they'll have like a three or four or five day party. That's a short party. Uh, and they have um, the music or skits or anything, you know, played on loudspeakers really, really, really loud. And especially if Saida Ulakana is away. <laughs> <laughs> it's hopeless. I mean, it's, it's night and day constantly. It's really loud. And sometimes this year it started with, um, you know, the song, No Woman, No Cry. Uh, and it's, it's harder when you know the songs, actually. It's in Burmese, but, you know, it just starts that stream of, you know, the inability to shut off the song in your head, you know, over and over. And the easier ones to deal with are actually the ones that we don't have any familiarity with. Um, and the skits are the hardest, <laughs> because you can kind of tell by the sound of the voices and what's happening. You can actually imagine them acting out whatever they're acting out in the skits. Uh, and so what happens after a day or two is people sort of cope. You know, the yogis, the students cope for a while, and then by the third day they get this look. Like, you know, <laughs> when did they stop partying here? You know, and by the fourth day, you know, there's just this incredible aversion going on. Um, <laughs> and I try to say, you know, which is louder? <laughs> you know, really, if we played our minds on a loudspeaker in the village, there'd be an incredible competition. And in fact, I think we would be louder. And if you just hooked us all up to a loudspeaker here in the hall, if we could take a turn, you know, it would be, you know, it's pretty quiet in here. But if you just listen to your own mind and multiply it times 130 people, it's pretty loud in here sometimes. So the reactive mind, the reacting to uh, the pain in the world with aversion or fear, reacting to the joy, the pleasure in the world with attachment, that's really loud. It's really noisy and it's very painful. If we can start to accept the level of um, change 
that's really happening, the stream of change that life uh, truly is. Uh, that acceptance allows us uh, to shift to being able to truly receive a moment and to let that moment or moments live themselves out and then to pass away. That's the ability to let go of control, to be vulnerable. When we're noticing a breath, how many times can we really accomplish such an exquisite feat? And in some ways, relating to the movement of the breath can be like listening to the waves of an ocean. You know, there is just that uh, exquisiteness of a breath taking birth, living itself out, and passing away. When we're able to do this, hopefully we integrate an understanding with this so that we value it. You know, we can be joyful when we can accomplish such a feat. We start to see when we have this kind of an experience that we're really present. We're very much at home with the awareness. We see then that the past is just a thought, the future is just a thought, and that we really do only have now. But that now is really, (laughs) it's very um, fragile. It's happening very quickly. Life is so alive, it's moving so quickly that that's why it's such a great feat to be able to let a a breath come and go by itself, or a sound, or an experience of loneliness. To let life touch us so deeply takes great courage, because life is full of pleasure and pain. Uh, This requires the willingness to face the reactive mind. It takes the willingness to hurt sometimes. There's a kind of sweetness to this kind of aspiration to be free. It's so uh, pure. Sometimes when I'm in Upper Burma, I have a chance to uh, walk up to a cave that um, has been inhabited over the years, maybe I don't know how long, but they say people have been practicing in those hills for uh, 1,000 or 1,500 years. And at the present time, uh, just this, uh, uh, the last lifetime of someone, a monk, uh, there was a monk that lived in the cave, and his aspiration, uh, or was, he just died a few years ago, was to be the next Buddha's attendant. Uh, So he spent this lifetime, his lifetime, in that cave, practicing to be the Buddha's attendant. That's humble. You know, that we can get into this whole thing about being the next Buddha, you know, but how many of us, you know, would be willing to practice over many lifetimes to be the Buddha's attendant? And I can tell you that the feeling in that cave is so sweet, and it's that sweetness of such a pure aspiration. And I I just think about our concept of service. You know, it just kind of, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? That (laughs) the rarity, it's so out there compared to what we usually think of as service. In some ways it can be interesting to see what protects aspiration. 
And I think that renunciation protects the sweetness of our aspiration, uh, the intention to be simple. When I think about uh, the monks and their begging bowls when they go off for alms round, and that willingness to just um, go off and receive whatever is given, and that's, that's all they get. Uh, that's how we're meant to do a, ba- a day of practice. If you can relate to the day of practice, is whatever you've experienced today was what was given to you to learn to be mindful of. And if you learn to relate, that's the aspiration. If you learn to receive whatever you were given today as, the, uh, as your teacher for learning to be mindful, to learning to work with aversion and attachment, it would literally be just enough. It's always just enough. <laughs> it's actually plenty. <laughs> you know, it's almost like we're given too much. It's, uh, life is very rich when we're paying attention. And how do we um, develop this ability to see this so clearly that each moment is just enough? One context for this is, is starting with the very simple aiming and connecting the attention. That's being so simple. That is renunciation. It's letting go of the conceptual world and just being willing to aim and connect the attention with what is happening. So say it's a breath uh, or whatever it is, a sound. Maybe it's loneliness or sadness. uh, But there has to be that ability to just aim the attention to the experience, sustain it. And the Buddha called this ability to um, have energy Um, with this, to have the energy to sustain it, courageous energy. It's heroic energy. And so you can think of, after the aiming and sustaining, there has to be some courage to face life as it is. And if we can maintain that courage, aiming, sustaining, and then the courage, there will be at some point interest. If there's enough energy, there'll be interest in what's happening. And it'll shift from not being quite good enough. You know how there's that stream of dissatisfaction (laughs) running through our experience? It shifts from that stream of dissatisfaction to this intense interest in what's happening. And it's joyful because it doesn't depend on whether it's painful or pleasurable. And it, it feels wonderful. It's like that shift is extraordinary. And you can't make it happen. Uh, but you can start to recognize it and value it. It can be developed by just having the patience and the renunciation to aim and connect, and aim and connect, to keep it that simple. The Buddha called joyful interest the gateway to enlightenment, the gateway to the light in the mind, And so you can think of it as the gateway to freedom. And this intense delight in exploring the truth is like the soft heart of a young child. There is that uh, purity. It's, It's pure exploration. And that openness or tenderness or vulnerability allows the truth of life to touch our hearts. Uh, And the non-intellectual wisdom arises out of that direct touching or contact. 
with the universe, with the truth of things as they are. It does require some energy for this to happen. And the energy allows us to be able to let go of the known, to let go of the security. Uh, And so we shift from thinking we know what a breath is, or we know what knee pain is, or we know what a flower is, to that interest. I can see this every time I go by uh, the California poppy. There's one little California poppy uh, growing right along the tar as you turn the curve to come up here. And you can see, sometimes I go by it and I'm totally disinterested and I'm trying to get here on time or whatever. Uh, And that's not exactly the intense delight in exploring the truth. And sometimes I walk by and it's there. You know, it's like, wow, I see it like it's the first time. And it, you, can, you can notice things. These are kind of touch tones uh, on a retreat. You can see how you're relating to things like that. It's a measure in a way for um, how our mind is. I raised uh, my sister's children when I was young for uh, some time. And the uh, middle child, um, used to not like that I used to force the three children to go see the sunset with me every night. <laughs> it was like a forced march. Uh, <laughs> and I used to be so enthusiastic about going to see the sunset. And two of the children would sort of put up with me, but the middle child just did not like this uh, at all. And we'd get to this uh, hill that overlooked the sunset, and I'd be like, and you know, I'd be just waiting for it, and, and she'd go. Michelle, it's just another sunset. (laughs) It was so funny because she just couldn't get into that deep delight in exploring the sunset. And I really appreciated her her saying it. It was like, you know, oh, it's just, you know how when you're doing walking meditation and you're about to take another step and you really can't even figure out why we would ask you to do that. <laughs> you know, it just, you lose the thread entirely. Like, why <laughs> doing this? You know, it's like, why are we watching this sunset? <laughs> you know, we do that a lot. <laughs> so joy is the opposite of a dull or a timid mind. It's the opposite of a judgmental or a righteous mind. Joy happens when we aren't looking for results or we don't have an agenda. And this joyful interest is what allows us to move from the conceptual realm of existence to uh, this level of pure exploration, where we go to the experiential level of experience, and that's what allows deep understanding to occur. When I was quite young, uh, life was so difficult, I learned to go out into nature uh, and find a connection there that would bring joy. So I realized that if I went out somewhere in the forest or by a lake and just stayed there long enough, that somehow that connection with something would happen. So whether it was a flower or a bird or the sound of a wave 
somehow it would hold me up. It would give me the courage to keep going. I'm very grateful for that. You know, it, it taught me a lot about joyful interest. But then when I would uh, feel that feeling like I could go on, it wouldn't last in the human world. You know, I'd go back <laughs> to the human world and I'd have to go back to nature pretty quickly. Uh, the recovery time needed was extraordinary. And until I found the mindfulness practice, I really had no other protection. It was either nature or really um, react and suffer. Uh, so that the gratefulness I feel in finding this practice is just incredible because I just had no tools to learn how to be in this realm of pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow in the human world. It was just too overwhelming. Pure exploration allows us to truly treat each moment equally. Uh, so we start to see the possibility that we can be mindful of any experience, whether it's, it's something like back pain or you know that neat hook in the back of the shoulders that we hang from sometimes at the end of, re- of, the end of sittings. Uh, we can go from being with the sound of a bird to any black hole to worthlessness, jealousy, loving-kindness, joy, understanding. It's like the range of human experience that we can start being mindful of will keep opening as the mindfulness develops. So I went from pretty much not being able to work with about 99% of my experience when I first started practicing to feeling like that range will just keep opening with a certain amount of patience. In this world of joy and sorrow, our motivation or aspiration is one of developing understanding and compassion. And we start to get that the understanding and the compassion feels joyful. It feels wonderful. So the path itself you know, when we get this, the path itself becomes joyful, even though it's, it can be very painful at times to awaken. Pure exploration sometimes is easy to shift to. When I first uh, arrived here to Spirit Rock, uh, this retreat, I went down to the tea urn, and I'm someone who loves uh, black tea caffeinated tea. And so I went up to that amazing amount of different choices that one has here, and I got to this box box that said Earl Black. (laughs) Well, if you're a tea drinker, you know that it it used to be called Earl Grey. Uh, (laughs) And I was really upset. You just, I mean, I was like, I had this incredible aversion. Uh, (laughs) I had so much resistance. It was like, how can they change the name? Who changed the name? This is terrible. You know, and I I just, I read the ingredients day after day. It was like 40% caffeine, bergamot. And I kept thinking, how can they change the name? What is this? Uh, So I just totally rejected this box of tea. I wouldn't touch it. And then a friend of mine came, uh, and he's a sensual type, and he likes, you know, trying new things, obviously. And, and just watching him, it was so different. It's like, oh, Earl Black. Oh, isn't this interesting? You know, it's like, and he read the ingredients with joy, with, in- <laughs> <laughs> with intense delight. It was like, instead of an aversion attack, he just 
put the tea bag in, you know, was really interested and drank it. And I was just, oh, <laughs> boy, did I have a virgin. And I realized maybe I could try it, you know, that I didn't have to wipe it off the face of the universe, you know. And it was great. Um. <laughs> That's an easy example of shifting to <laughs> pure exploration. I had a friend that uh, came to the Burma retreat that I taught two years ago. Uh, and she's someone who has a very busy life. Just She has three children, a teacher school, and um, always has a lot of... She's, the family's very kind, and they take in people that are having difficulty, and her house is like pretty much a nut house. Um, <laughs> and so about three-quarters of the way through the retreat, this very deep, old, karmic knot of loneliness came up on the retreat. Uh, and she kind of dropped it in. Sometimes people drop things in at the end of an interview, like just as they're getting up, they say, oh, by the way, you know, there's this deep, old, painful loneliness that's coming up. Uh, and she said, <laughs> Never mind, I'll deal with it when I get home. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, mean, I know what her house is like, you know. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. You know, I can, you, do, you know, you're going to go home and you're going to have all, all kinds of time to deal with this. And, <laughs> and then we both burst out laughing. It was hilarious. I mean, it was ludicrous. Um, <laughs> but that's what we often do, you know, it's like, mm, never mind, uh, maybe next year. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's so interesting that when we get close to these painful places, it's like we perceive ourselves as a separate self uh, in a way that's so uh, it's like a downward spiral. The loneliness can happen, the worthlessness, the feeling that we're totally unlovable and no good. And it can lead to that desire to fill up the holes where we don't, you know, it's like whether we're putting it in the mouth or the genitals or, you know, it's like we've just become this hole, you know, and whether it's a career or a romance or uh, food, <laughs> whatever it is, it's like that neediness and the pain, uh, anything will do um, not to experience it. And we have to have a great deal of compassion for ourselves because some of the surface things can be fairly easy to be mindful of, but the deeper ones, there'll be an enormous amount of resistance. And the, the tendency to get lost in a, a fantasy is just, if you look at it closely, it's like a convoluted kind of meta. It's like we're trying to find some way to soothe ourselves, but it's like we're afraid to be mindful of the experience. So some of the practice is being incredibly patient with this. And sometimes learning. You might, when you have a fantasy, note soothing rather than thinking. And just see, that kind of starts to make a hole in it. It de deals a little more directly uh, with the deeper pain that we're not wanting to look at. I have an old friend who um, came and sat a three-month retreat 
a few years ago. Uh, and right afterwards, he got married. And he, during the retreat, he learned some of the metta practice. And that spring, I think he, he did the three-month retreat in the fall, got married over the winter. In the spring, his wife called me. Uh, and she hadn't done any meditation practice before. Uh, and so she said, I just want to describe something for you. That's okay. And, and this friend uh, has a job in the social services, and it, it's uh, hard work sometimes. And sometimes he comes home from work kind of grumpy and irritable. Uh, and there was a really difficult person at work uh, that he was having trouble with. So she said her husband came in the door, and he slammed the door. Uh, and he said, he was <laughs> referring to the difficult person, he slammed the door and he said, may he be happy. <laughs> and then he went to the bathroom and walked in the bathroom and slammed the door and he went, may he be peaceful. <laughs> and then she heard the toilet <laughs> seat go up, may he be liberated. <laughs> and then she said, um, Michelle, is this good meditation practice? <laughs> Do you think the practice is working? <laughs> and I said, you know, he's trying. <laughs> he's slightly identified with the aversion, I'd say. <laughs> Give it a little more time. <laughs> we forget sometimes that we're going through a purification process, uh, and that joy beyond its objects means that we're facing the reactive mind, that sometimes we'll see the anger more clearly, and there might be this kind of watercolorish experience where we're trying to experience the metta, but the aversion leaks in. Uh, and he, he was doing the best he could, but you can see he was struggling. I, I do this in traffic sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, my husband Steve is an incredibly generous driver, uh, and we'll be in a traffic jam, and there'll be somebody trying to get in, you know, on the side street, and he'll let one car in, and I'll be like, <laughs> that was nice of him. <laughs> and then he'll let two cars in, and it'll be like, I start tightening up, you know, and I try not to say anything. And then he'll let three, and I'll be like, three! <laughs> so if we look closely at how much of the time we're really mindful, which means that the attention is colored with this non reactive, non-judgmental attention, uh, we'll start to see that uh, what, was, what we're waking up to is the reactive mind. You know, we'll see it more clearly. And so often we're reacting to the pain in the world with anger or fear or grief or cruelty, or we're reacting to the pleasure in this world with addiction or attachment or clinging or wanting. And the Buddha taught that not being aware of this process is madness. On a self-retreat I did this past November, 
I just seem to have such a clearer view of the comparing mind. Uh, and it was so subtle. You know, it wasn't like very intense pain. It was like I would notice that stream of dissatisfaction between just mo- one moment and another. It was like the, the next moment wasn't good enough. It's like I had that comparing so um, with such continuity. And it was so painful to see that the next moment wasn't quite good enough, or the next moment wasn't quite good enough. And whether comparing is subtle or gross, it's like it kills joy. Comparing kills joy. And we see how much we compare ourselves with ourselves, you know, or we compare ourselves with others, you know, how much of the time are we comparing ourselves in a retreat with someone else at the retreat? Never mind our last retreat. (laughs) Often if we look closely at comparing, it's a kind of protection against feeling the deeper defense against our feelings of worthlessness or jealousy. Especially when we notice how much we compare ourselves with others on retreat. If uh, we get caught in the thinking about it, look closely and just see that in that moment we're often feeling like our practice isn't good enough. It's that judgmental mind again. And this um, comparing not only kills the possibility for joy, but it kills the possibility for gratitude. Joy, um, sometimes it's scary for people to experience. It's like I think about um, the times when I would be over-exuberant as a child. Uh, And you know that feeling of kind of being over-exuberant in a a classroom or or somewhere and being crushed, you know, for being too open-hearted. So sometimes we are afraid of the experience of joy because Uh, we have that memory of being crushed there. Uh, So there's there's a reason why we don't tend to trust joy, and sometimes it's because that fear of being crushed, but also we'll be afraid of the addiction or the clinging that can come from joy. Uh, So I've found that in my meditation practice that uh, I've really tried to be aware of uh, not only just... (laughs) you know, a painful feeling and the reaction of fear or aversion, but also pleasantness, and then enjoyment. Uh, And there was some kind of way in which I would not want to be mindful of the enjoyment, because I would um, somehow want to hold on to the pleasure in a way that I would lose myself in it or get absorbed in it. Uh, But I found that if I could be mindful of enjoyment, that it would lead to appreciation rather than attachment. So try it out. I mean, the food here (laughs) is so incredible. I mean, it's so good (laughs) and so delicious that hopefully when you're eating, you'll start to see that you can be, you know, tasting, chewing, you know, soft, hard, whatever. But we can also notice the pleasure. And then it's a great practice to start being able to be mindful if there's a moment or moments of enjoyment. 
and then see if it can lead to appreciation or gratitude rather than holding on. And if it does lead to holding on or attachment, see if you can be aware of that. Try not to judge that. It's, it's hard enough to do here, uh, but this is the place to explore. Explore the wanting mind. Explore the grasping mind. So there's no need to repress joyful energy. In fact, the Buddha taught that we need to use the joyful interest uh, to go deeper in the practice. It's a gateway to enlightenment. So we try not to uh, repress it, but we also learn not to indulge it. Uh, And so if we look at the image of the Buddha, uh, he doesn't look like he's high as a kite. You know, look at the Buddha's face right now. There's a, there's a serenity, there's a calm and a concentration and equanimity that's balancing the joy, but there's a smile there. You know, and we can learn to do that with joy. to talk about different ways that we can um, learn to value joy. Uh, So one of the ways that we can, I think, bring about the conditions for joy is through generosity. I had a, a friend that came with me to Burma this year, and he's an acupuncturist, so he took his uh, vacation time to come to this hospital. We have a hospital and school project in the village there and near the monastery. And so he came for a week, um, and the hospital administrator took a chalkboard, and he put it out in front of the uh, hospital. And it was in Burmese, but it said that uh, this uh, Michael Zucker, that was the only English, Michael Zucker, was um, going to offer acupuncture for any monks or nuns or villagers uh, for a week. So for a week, this hospital was just uh, streaming full of people getting treated. And not only was he treating uh, the village people and the monks and nuns, but he was training a local Burmese doctor to try to start to learn how to do acupuncture. And so what I would try so hard to get time off from interviews to go down and see him. And it wasn't just that the people there were getting some relief from suffering, uh, but he was so happy. It's like I've never seen him so happy. He was just so filled with joy. It was like he was beaming uh, from that sense of giving. The Buddha taught that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. So if we tend to get locked into a form of kind of involution, of um, locked-in agony, sometimes it helps to share something. When I'm on retreat, a self-retreat or a retreat like this, I often save a little bit of food and bring it out, out into the forest for the ants. You know, that doesn't take much, but it really makes me happy. You know, generosity is not so much what it's doing for the receiver, but what it does for our own hearts. And if you look at the aiming, connecting, sustaining, 
it's a, generosity is a form of connection. Uh, and this what, is what brings joy, whether we're aiming and connecting with a breath, or aiming c- or connecting with a metta object like the, yourself, or a dear friend, or a difficult person. The intense delight of exploration happens when we make the connection. So generosity is one way of, of making connection, and the other that I found is forgiveness. I heard a story on NPR uh, right before I did my self-retreat this past fall, and it was about forgiveness. Forgiving others and forgiving ourselves uh, when there are milder hurts or harm uh, will often come up when we're on retreat. You know, some things that we've done that hurt others or things that people have done that hurt us, they come up, you know, you know the space. It's not that we make it happen, it just will come up. And often when we understand and accept and not identify, uh, there will be moments of forgiveness. Forgiving others and ourselves with the deeper, older knots sometimes are harder to forgive. And I was going into this retreat with, I knew that one of my struggles during the retreat was a a kind of deeper, older forgiveness. Uh, So it it came at the right time. And I heard a story about, it was a, a man from the Navajo Nation speaking about forgiveness. And he was in World War II. And when he was uh, fighting, he was captured and tortured. <laughs> and the, uh, he actually had his, na- uh, his hands and his feet nailed to a floor. Uh, and when he was describing this, his voice sounded so peaceful and so free. So I, even though I didn't want to quite hear about it, I was started to listen more carefully. And he said something. <laughs> really incredible. He said that uh, forgiving the person who did this to him was harder than going through the experience. And it it just taught me everything. It was like, oh, of course. You know, it's like, no, no, no wonder it's so hard to forgive some of these deeper, older things. It's like, not only is it hard to go through the experience, but it's harder to forgive sometimes. Uh, And that just helped me to get connecting with that, helped me to feel the inspiration and the courage to make that leap, uh, to work with that uh, pain in my life. So it's it's like forgiveness is hard, but often um, it's like when we have the achievement of really receiving a breath and having some understanding with it, uh, when we have some moments of forgiveness with deeper, older knots, it's incredibly joyful because, again, that understanding is such a, an achievement. And the joy is not based on pleasure. Anytime we overcome the pain-pleasure syndrome, uh, it's such a, a depth of joy because we know we're free, we know we're liberated. Generosity and forgiveness 
are two ways that we can work with um, bringing about more joy in our lives. Also, I think kindness, simple kindness. I was uh, just flying out of L.A. seems like just a few weeks. I think it was two weeks ago. Um, And my husband had the window seat. And we were going out to take off. uh, And (laughs) Steve said to me, there's a little stream of gas coming out of the plane. Uh, So I I leaned over and I looked and there was this little stream (laughs) of gas coming out of the wing. So we're traveling out uh, and then we were in that waiting pattern where you wait to get the signal to go. Uh, Luckily we were waiting. And the little stream turned into this waterfall. It was like this waterfall of gasoline was pouring out of the plane. and then soon there was an announcement on the um, loudspeaker that said, please don't get out of your seats and look out the window. <laughs> 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 of course, you know, I was up and looking in a second. Uh, but um, <laughs> in just minutes, there were fire engines and uh, trucks and sandbags. And it was just this extraordinary amount of human energy to try to protect us. Uh, but they wouldn't let us out of the plane for about an hour. We had to just sit through this gas leak. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, you could feel the moments in the plane where everyone realized just one spark, <laughs> you know, just one little teeny spark, and we'd all be gone. Uh, so the second announcement was, um, this plane is not in service at this time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And I was watching how people were dealing with this. And every once in a while, someone would panic. And it was so wonderful to see that people were actually taking care of each other. Like somebody would come up to somebody and hold their hand and kind of talk them down. And then somebody else might panic and somebody went up to them and talked them down. And it was such a feeling of being in the human world where people actually were afraid and claustrophobic. But the kindness just kept settling everything. And it wasn't you know, the staff. It was really the people in the plane doing it. It was very inspiring. Uh, so I felt, even though there were times when I felt anxious, there was that joy that was coming in the plane for all of us because of that. Again, people made the effort to connect to the fear rather than ignore it. Aim, connect, sustain courage. You know, this is all the same thing, whether it's a breath, a sound, a knee pain, sadness. If we're not afraid to make the connection and be mindful, there can be joy, whether it's painful or pleasurable. The last thing I wanted to mention in terms of um, working with joyful interest is that awareness of death, we've mentioned this several times in the retreat, but sometimes um, bringing awareness of death into our consciousness, it's actually one of the four guardian meditations. Uh, And it can bring about a kind of a spiritual urgency that can help 
wake us up out of our complacency and help us connect with what's happening. The native, uh, there's a Native American saying, I am so grateful for each day of life that any day is a good day to die. We've heard any day is a good day to die, but that phrase before it is very important. I am so grateful for each day of life that any day is a good day to die. For myself, when my mother died when I was young, it had such an incredible impact on me. You know, as I went um, and touched her body, and it was so cold, and it was like this electric shock that I still remember it so vividly. It was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it was just this, it's the understanding. I connected with that body, and it had been warm and alive and then so cold. Uh, and that realization that it's going to happen to me and everyone, um, it can really clean up our act. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just cuts through in a way that if we, you know, you can try to bring it in and it won't make an impact. You know, there won't be enough energy. But there will be times when we can let that in and it can bring about a kind of spiritual urgency that isn't morbid, but very energizing, very helpful for our practice. I don't, don't underestimate it. It's a powerful tool. My sister has been going through um, her third year of chemotherapy, and for some reason, I don't understand, but she's been on this diet where she hasn't been able to eat fresh fruit and vegetables um, for over two years. Uh, and she had this little window of time where she, they were allowed her to eat maybe a couple days some fresh fruit and vegetables before the next round. Uh, and to hear her describe eating a tomato I mean, it was just like, it sounded like she'd been on retreat for years. The, the joy, the joy and the long description of, of just the delight and uh, connection with that tomato. Uh, and we get dull, and it's human to get dull. But sometimes try to bring in this awareness. There were many years when I would walk into a meditation hall and not really understand bowing. And I looked up uh, the Pali word for bowing, and it, it means anjali. It's, the word is anjali. And I read several meanings. One is that it's a gesture of reverence. Uh, but the meaning that I really liked is that it's a full offering of ourself. It's a full offering of our body and mind. Uh, and for some people bowing, uh, they do it very traditionally, where they bow three times to the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, but at first, when I practiced, um, I didn't relate to that or relate to the Buddha image. Uh, and I first would bow to the flowers. But over time, I started really appreciating putting my forehead on the earth and making that connection with that which sustains us. It's like our home. Uh, to be able to put your forehead on, you know, your home and appreciate that it, it's, it's allowing you to live 
and to go through this journey. It's, it's something that I went from resisting to loving to do. And one of the reasons I love to do it so much is because no matter what space I'm in, no matter what I'm, I'm going through, that act is one of humility and one of surrender. And it really helps me to open to all the ups and downs that I'm going through. So it's a, it's a practice in and of itself. Uh, so I'm not saying do it, but I would say try to understand it. Even if you put your hands in your pockets, like this, <laughs> you know, standing. It's, it's the beginning of, uh, it doesn't have to be outward as much as an inward gesture of uh, humility. And I find it really helped a lot, my practice. because it's very joyful. (laughs) One of the beautiful things about being in Upper Burma in these hills that are called the spiritual heart of Burma is the monastery overlooks the Irrawaddy River. And every morning Uh, The river is so still, it doesn't look like it's moving. Uh, And the boats that go by are very ancient, you know, they're boats like I've never seen before. And they don't seem to come together, you know, in the darkness in the early morning. They just come every once in a while by. Uh, And as the light starts to appear, when a boat goes by, the boat will make a perfect wake. It's just exquisite. It's just cleanly going through the water with this wake. Uh, And it's taught me a lot about the wake that I leave as I move through life. So we know when we're full of attachment or aversion or fear and we're going through life, the wake that we leave is attachment and fear uh, and pain. And when we're peaceful, when there's mindfulness or metta or compassion or whatever, the wake that we leave is metta and mindfulness um, and peace. And that it's so clear every morning that it helped me to um, set a kind of deeper aspiration for the kind of wake that I leave in my life. So I'd like to end with um, a poem, a Pablo Neruda poem. It's part of a poem of his, which is, he called it his last testament, or basically it's his will. And he called it between dying and not dying, which is quite interesting, between dying and not dying. Has anyone been granted as much joy as I have. I've been a great flowing river with hard ringing stones, with clear night noises, with dark day songs. To whom can I leave so much, so much and so little? Joy beyond its objects, a lone horse by the sea, a loom weaving the wind. 
hopefully when we die, or before we die, we have that sense of to whom can we leave so much, so much and so little. And may, may we all aspire to leave a wake of peace and happiness and joy in this world. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.